Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan talk about the emergence of Jungle, the first major Afro-Anglo music genre native to Britain. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say Techno Roll, which means I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Ryan Harkness, to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And today we are in the chapter he calls Roots and Future, Jungle Takes Over London. Ryan, is that as ominous as it sounds? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean... I love the segmented nature of this book. There's a lot of chapters focusing on a lot of like small little elements of the scene. But in this case, I really wish they'd stuck together at least, you know, or at least put back to back this chapter and and the war in the jungle chapter, because I feel like one's kind of incomplete without the other. But this does tell a very important story about kind of the beginning of of the fracture from jungle to drum and bass and stuff like that. There's there's so much I want to talk about that crosses over between the two sections between what we're going to talk about this week and next week. And I'm going to do my best to stay within the lines of the chapter so I'm not cannibalizing anything for War in the Jungle, which I think will be like three weeks from now. Excellent. And I'm also not prepared for that discussion. So, yeah, you'll be talking way over my head. I kind of wish this was closer to the discussions of hardcore and dark side because that kind of tells a narrative of how hardcore becomes jungle over uh and and the dark side as we discussed before not even sure that was really a genre just sort of a transitional phase leading into jungle but nonetheless yeah it all snakes through and 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 jungle keeps on making these sneaky little appearances through and through with the leading into that hardcore chapter with shut up and dance and then into the dark side with poor hero and everybody and now we're we're focusing on this and because the book is kind of broken up in, in, in an effort to kind of be chronological which which i guess makes sense uh we end up kind of jumping kind of back and forth where i feel like a, an overview of the entire jungle drum and bass scene uh, is you know a, a little bit less all over the place but uh you know it, it's all good this is still like a very important little little chapter that we can touch on it's just i was really ripping roaring to go for all the stuff like 96 is where i got <laughs> into the rave scene and heard jungle drum and bass for the first time so all of a sudden oh. i've got like first-hand accounts first-hand data on what's going on but right now we're still kind of like oh sitting around 92 94 it's just before me you know i see well just cool your jets let's Let's keep our focus on the history and and, and try to get through it because it's a fascinating, fascinating stuff. I've been looking forward to this because I, too, have been hearing about Jungle since 95, 96 and Jungle, Drum and Bass and never quite understood the difference. And go ahead and tell us, what's the difference between Jungle and Drum and Bass? OK, well, I mean, the main thing to remember is that for most people, they're interchangeable. And when they're talking about one, they could be talking about the other. And there's not too much of a of a difference. You know, producers and people like in really really deep into it will kind of point to jungle being more of the uh, sped up breakbeat and often with more of a raga 
feel to it, like uh, a lot of that dance hall vibe and uh, much more prominent MCs and stuff like that. Well, drum and bass usually ends up being a bit more severe, cold and and melodic, a little bit jazzier, a little bit more of that Bristol sound and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, it's it's a really big debate and we'll get to it at the end of this chapter because this is where it kind of comes up as to uh, how drum and bass came out of jungle and how there was a bit of a concerted effort to rebrand jungle and kind of dis jungle and, and push certain elements of jungle out. That was uh, a pretty big deal at the time. And still to this day is like pretty controversial and comes up from time to time. as this kind of almost like Caesar like betrayal. Ouch. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. But first let's start the way Reynolds told the story is he starts with the Notting Hill Carnival in August of 1993, and he'd apparently been listening to pirate radio, which we covered last time, and that made sense that you got to have pirate radio to understand jungle. He's been hearing it on the radio. He's hyped. He thinks it's going to be a big show. He gets there. There's multiple sound systems, but there's just one little jungle sound system and about 25 people that show up. And so he's pretty underwhelmed, leaves pretty quickly. But by the time he comes back in August 1994 to the same thing, the Notting Hill Carnival, he says, every other sound system was blasting jungle. Um, UK Apache's original nutter was in the top 40 uh, and with Shy FX doing the MC work there. And what uh, a difference Shy FX makes. being the producer and UK ah, Apache being the MC. Ah, my bad, my bad. Well, why'd they call him DJ Apache then? Is that some Jamaican thing? That must have just been uh, something that you read in a wrong corner of the internet, because UK Apache <laughs> was the uh, yeah was the MC. Okay, well th that's why you're here. That's why yeah, you're yeah. here. So yeah, and so tell us what happened in that year. Why was why was it why did it go from totally underground to the hottest new thing in London? Well, I mean, you can kind of point to the uh, to the to the sudden emergence of the uh, of the the reggae and the uh, the dance hall sound uh, coming into jungle. Some would say infiltrating jungle, and you had that uh, original Nutta, which was huge, and then General Levy also came in with uh, incredible, I, I believe it was with M Beat, and that's that's basically uh, I think he Simon Reynolds notes it in the book as the biggest jungle track. You know, as far as charts go, uh, up to the the the, the re-release of the book and stuff like that. So it was a massive track, and all of a sudden, like uh, reggae and dancehall was having a bit of an, a reemergence at the time, and this took all of kind of that that rare groove soul reggae, all those people, and brought them into the jungle scene. So it was a sudden influx of people brought on by that mainstreaming from those two big hits. And so all of a sudden, you know, you have all the other guys, all these jungle producers that have been there slowly moving the sound out of the hardcore breakbeat arena into what they feel like jungle is. And they suddenly feel like, you know, Dance Hall is taking over. Ragged Jungle is taking over. They didn't have the name for it at the time, so it all just got mashed into Jungle. And so, you know, uh, it, it went from a bit of a smaller scene to all of a sudden being what people feared was going to be the flavor of the month. So, I see, I see. And and Reynolds says that you know, like you say, out of the fluxed up chaos of hardcore which is how he says spells hardcore, um, involved an entirely new sound, a new subculture, jungle. Between 1992 and 1994, jungle shed the chrysalis of hardcore and with it 
every last vestige of rave culture. And the only element to survive was the sheer velocity of the music, as though ecstasy culture had permanently hyped up the metabolism of a generation. He says the music's core is the accelerated, chopped up breakbeat rhythms that create that fierce, fierce joy or militant euphoria. Jungle is the metabolic pulse of a body reprogrammed and rewired to cope with an era of unimaginably intense information overload. And they didn't even really have the internet yet. And they're going this crazy with the music. Just, you know, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. Should we, should we play our first song now? You want to start with Renegade Snares? Is that correct? Yeah. And just to, just to put a little bit more context, you know, out goes the piano rolls and synth stabs and in comes the dub bass, the wobble and all the reggae influence. So this is, this is the big shift. All right. So this is Omni Trio, Renegade Snares, and this is the Foul Play remix. Renegade Snares by Omni Trio, the Foul Play remix, uh, an apocal jungle track, one where we could see it's not dark side anymore, it's not hardcore, it's jungle, new thing. And what I find fascinating about this is that it's not just the drub, dub bass, it's not just the raga stuff, it's also bringing the hip hop influence back into it in a big way, which we've been seeing through breakbeat hardcore. That's what breakbeat hardcore is and breakbeats that's dj cool herc's discovery in the bronx in the 1970s was just that if you play the part of the james brown record that's nothing but drums or maybe drums and bass the crowds will go crazy the b-boys will start popping and that becomes the basis of hip-hop in the 70s hip-hop obviously goes beyond that and and there's lots of hip-hop that doesn't have drum breaks in it at all but nonetheless drum breaks are a quintessential element of of hip-hop associated with hip-hop it comes into our story with hip house terry edwards and other people in the u.s in the late 80s are trying to blend house and hip-hop the jungle brothers do a track i want to house you etc it's sort of rejected by the hip-hop community in america it has to do with an intra-African-American thing, Chicago versus New York, straight versus gay, et cetera. So hip house doesn't really play in the U.S., but it plays in England and leads to all kinds of stuff. This whole wave of, of pop groups, Soul to Soul and Ace of Bass and others that have these these massive kind of one-off hits. But then it gets into our story and hardcore because a lot of producers find it easier to sample a breakbeat than to painstakingly build a track with a drum machine. Yeah, there's but nothing they, like the swing of like a real raw breakbeat. Modern production software does its best nowadays to allow producers to punch in realistic breakbeats like with individual kicks and hi-hats and snares, but it doesn't capture that muddy beauty and imperfection of like a real drum kit lifted straight out of an obscure record. Yeah, and the real sound of a real funky drummer, somebody like Clyde Stubblefield um, or the dude with the meters or the cool in the gang who really could lay it down in an impossible to quantify sense. And so 
things, tracks like Amen, My Brother by the Winstons, uh, Lynn Collins' Think with the big James Brown shout on there. These become these famous breaks that are used again and again and again. And, uh, uh, you know, you also have this influx of producers who were B-boys in the 80s, people like Gavin King of Urban Shakedown, DJ Hype and Danny Brakes of the Sons of a Loop-de-Loop era. And sounds yeah, it's, 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 it's a hard. Era. That's a hard one to say. I don't. It's, you know, <laughs> my vote for the worst name uh, performance name of this era. But they made some great records. But these guys came out of the b-boy culture, and these were British, usually black kids. Not always, though. A lot of these guys were white, um, who were way into hip hop in the '80s, also into rare groove and and jazz funk and that kind of stuff. Or jazz funk was probably earlier, but they're into that, and. They got pulled into the rave scene in 88, 89, and when they start producing records for rave, they bring that hip-hop influence into it. And Reynolds says that the, quote, hyper-syncopated hardcore, which is what breakbeat hardcore was, that then brings more and more black kids into it because they're hearing the stuff that they had heard and liked brought them into rave culture, which, quote, catalyzed the feedback loop of black influence that resulted in jungle. So I, I, I love this, that the British culture has kind of rescued this these element of African-American music and these elements of Jamaican Afro-Caribbean music and and push them into, into rave and make a whole new thing. Yeah, it's definitely, I feel like, almost more of a push. Like uh, one one history point covered in the earlier hardcore chapter was how a group named Shut Up and Dance effectively effectively created that breakbeat hardcore sound and found themselves basically pushed out of the, the current black music scene in London and forced into the rave scene just, just based on the musical tastes of the time. So there was like an exodus that ended up going on where black artists pushing what became the jungle sound were adopted by the largely white acid house scene and I've heard interviews with guys like Jumping Jack Frost, where he talks about how much crap he used to get from his rare groove and reggae friends for jumping ship. But he loved the rave scene because there was a real breaking down of the race divide going on. And, and he wasn't getting shaken down every week like he was at the blues parties. So these guys were 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 musically ostracized and then and then kind of taken in by by this other scene that just ended up having at the time started out being pretty white, but ended up being pretty mixed. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story, and it's also interesting that the way breakbeat hardcore becomes, you know, the ugly duckling of the scene and is rejected by all the cognoscenti who are getting into intelligent techno or who are bringing back deep house, um, that are embarrassed by all these over-the-top ravers with their Vicks vapor rub and and hyped up on X and the toy town techno type stuff that was super popular but got kind of embarrassing. And when these African elements start coming back into the music, especially coming in through this very low status subgenre of the music, um, it shrank the audience even more. And so there's there's this um, he says that the breakbeat mesthetic alienated many. It was too funky to dance to. It lost the four to the four beats of house and disco. And that rave scene magazine prophesized that breakbeat was the death knell of rave. And Reynolds says in a way he was right because it, it's where jungle comes in. But they weren't just grabbing breakbeats and and playing them. That's what they were doing at first. But pretty soon they start chopping them up. They're resequencing. They've got cheaper and cheaper technology that's coming into the hands of home producers. And they're 
you know, doing things like time stretching, they're compressing the time, making things shorter, they're pitch shifting, they're uh, doing psychedelia style reverse sounds, they're doing what they call ghosting, they're um, giving this, what he says, they, they give the percussion an eerie chromatic quality that blurred the line between rhythm, melody, and timbre, and that they would change the echo and the room sound on different drum hits within a single breakbeat. So they would take the snare from Funky Drummer or whatever and treat it like it was a great big cavernous room. Then they take the kick drum from that same drum sample and treat it like it was in a tiny closet. So it gives this really disorienting effect because when you hear sounds, you're used to them sounding like they're happening in one room. This is something that was not technologically possible until we had these kind of uh, samplers and sequencers and, and computers in the early 90s. So really distorts the human brain or disorients the human brain. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to underscore how different this stuff sounded when it first started coming out. It's just uh, com com completely, I mean, if you, if you were one of the people in the know who kind of watched it go from breakbeat hardcore into jungle, maybe not so much. But I, as I said, I remember going in at 16 years of age, having heard nothing but, you know, terrestrial radio in my small town in Canada and hearing this and just being like, wow, this is unlike anything I'd ever heard before. Yeah, and let's go ahead and hear uh, some more of it. And this is UK Apache. See, I know, I know what it is now. UK Apache featuring Shy FX. Shy FX featuring UK, UK Apache. <laughs> <laughs> almost. My, my bad. My bad. Uh, <laughs> almost there. This is original Nutter. You never know UK Apache. Big in a jungle. When we tell everybody, what you know, man? Me at the nutter. And that was Shy FX featuring UK Apache original nutta which made the top 40 and kind of broke jungle in uh to the british pop consciousness and then reynolds uh breaks down more of the the sound of jungle and he's 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 called it rhythmic psychedelia and says the human body simply can't do justice to the complex of rhythms that the ideal jungle dancer would be a virtuoso drummer who's got the ability to keep a separate beat with each limb and a body popping break dancer and a contortionist. And so, but failing that, the, the key to dancing in the jungle is focusing on one element, probably the bass line, which tends to be slower than the drums. If you follow that one rhythmic element, then you can dance through it. And then you let the break beats or whatever function as a melodic device. And yeah, I liked how Simon Reynolds basically said jungle was like a highway where you could cruise to the halftime baseline or you get in the fast lane, lane and try to keep up with the percussion. Yeah, and just totally spaz out <laughs> if, if you're an eat up white kid um, trying to trying to go with those uh, drum breaks. But, you know, he compares it to West African music and. West African music will have these really melodic guitar lines or marimba lines that are fast skipping melodic lines, and the breakbeats are kind of taking that role. And 
he says that jungle inverts Western music's hierarchy of melody and harmony being prioritized over rhythm, which is, takes us right back to West African music, where rhythm is the main thing. You'll have these orchestras of drums doing this most complex polyrhythms in the world, and pretty, I wouldn't say the melodic devices are minor, but they really act more as part of the polyrhythm than the dominant thing. It's not like a European thing where everything is at the service of the melody. But he also points out that avant-garde composers like John Cage and Steve Reich in the 60s, especially when they were fascinated with Indonesian, and I'm going to mispronounce this, gamelan music, uh, which is, again, percussion orchestras, but these are uh, East Asian percussion orchestras, and that John Cage had predicted that what we can't do ourselves will be done by machines and electrical instruments, which we will invent. So he sort of predicted the sequencer and the sampler. What do you think? Is that just hoo-ha, or is there actually some sort of influence of avant-garde composers in this? Uh, I mean, just so much in that you're willing to push the boundaries of what was considered acceptable and and just take it somewhere completely else. I mean, I think Original Nutta is one of those tracks where you hear it and all of a sudden the name of the genre jungle makes sense because there's that, that syncopated drum that is just so intense and so tribal that it just puts you in the jungle mentally and uh, it captures that kind of sound. So... Uh, I, I don't know so much as to as to what these guys were were kind of imagining uh, as far as futurism goes, but uh, I think the most important thing is there was a bunch of kids out there breaking the rules and using their equipment to to push the boundaries of what was possible before into, you know, what we get now, which is extreme, extremely different music. Absolutely, and and the other big element, it's not just the breakbeats; it's also what they did with the bass. And and he points out that you know until about mid 1992 in electronic dance music, bass lines, especially in hardcore, tended to follow the main beat. If the song was at 140 beats per minute, the bass line would be at 140 beats per minute, and and that the bass line would function as a quote stun gun, which punches home the chord changes. But in jungle bass returns, quote, to its function as a physically felt harmonic rhythmic component. And they slowed it down. First, they started doing, I guess, bleeping bass is where this comes from. They started doing these, what he calls a seismic sine wave ooze of low end. So there would just be this sort of sub-audible thud going on in the music, much slower. And then they, they bring in what it's clearly a dub reggae baseline. Like if the track was at 140 BPM, the baseline would be at 70 BPM. And this half-speed baseline transformed jungle into a two-lane music. So like you say, you can focus on the slow bass or you can focus on the fast breakbeat. And the bass starts taking on this melodic and textural role, which it absolutely carries in dub and reggae. And um, Yeah, it was definitely that integration of the dub bass lines that shattered jungle out of hardcore breakbeat. It's like the evolution from sim the, the simple aggravating stab synth lines of Belgium hardcore compared to the, the polyphonic super saw melodies of trance music. Like you, you can see all of a sudden where the line is crossed. And once the bass gets put out front, instead of being tucked under everything else, it's like a eureka moment. And jungle drum and bass is still built off that eureka moment to this day. It's what DJ Nikki Black Market called rumbleism, the low-end seismology of jungle. They detuned Roland 808s for that super, super heavy uh, bass, even beyond you know like what Two Live Crew or Miami Bass was doing, and did it like the dub guys with that just what he Reynolds calls a sinister radioactive glow coming from the bass lines. And there's also Dead Jack. Um, 
whose Dread Bass track becomes this uh, well-known device. It's, it's it's like the Mintasm stab that we talked about a few chapters ago from Josie Bel- Joey Belcham. Sometimes there's a track that has a certain element, or like Acid House, you know, Future's first track, that squelchy Acid House bass. It becomes a thing that people do over and over again, and they start calling it Dread Bass after the Dead Dread track. Uh, dead d- Dread deck i'm getting it wrong my autocorrect has 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 tricked me again i think but they also call it danger bass because they would add two or more bass lines in in one song and so the bass which reynolds says hitherto dance music's most reliable pulse became a plasma-like substance forever morphing and mutating i love that serpentine imagery and it really fits um the sound of this music yeah, there's all sorts of really cool stuff going on. You had some like slap bass happening for some more liquidy type tracks. And then you had stuff that just sounded like an ocean liner, just like running into running aground. There was uh, there was room for all of it and sometimes just in one track. So there, there was a lot going on there because uh, they weren't afraid to 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 do it, do it multiple times and then take the effects and turn them up to 11. And then after describing the music, Reynolds gets into sort of the sociology and talks about where did these B-boys, where did all the junglists come from? That's what they call themselves, junglists. And he says many of them were originally B-boys who'd gotten swept up in the hardcore rave scene. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. But a lot of them also came from the 80s reggae sound system subculture of dance, dance hall, electro, and rap. And, and he talks about Danny Brakes, who is a white whiz, whiz kid from Essex, who was, again, uh, part of the Sons of a Loop-de-Loop era. He was also in Drop in Science later on. As a school kid, he was into electro and break dancing and cutting up breaks on the turntable. But by the late 80s, he had already sort of given up on English rap, that, that it just needed that American voice quality and it wasn't really running. And he also felt, Reynolds felt that British rap didn't develop as a political force the way American rap did because the scene was more integrated in Britain, that it was more of a class divide than a racial divide, that if you were poor or lower middle class, black and white wasn't that big of a distinction. It was more that you were in the, the abandoned class rather than the uh, outcast race. And so it didn't. it just didn't have that political... Uh, oomph to it that that American hip hop did, but there was a lot of DJs like DJ Hype, Aphrodite, DJ Crystal, Four Hero, Goldie, DJ SS that were coming from a similar background. They were drawn to the rave scene by quote a desire to do instrumental stuff with breaks and weird sounds. Got swept up in the acid fad of 1989. That acid's futurism quote eclipsed an American hip hop sound already retreating to trad funk soul grooviness. And that this coincided with a final alienation from American rap, which had taken a turn toward the grimly serious. On the one hand, you had, you know, the NWA, Schooly D, gangster sound emerging. On the other hand, you had the public enemy, poor righteous teachers, sort of, you know, KRS One wants to school everybody scene. And the British kids just weren't into either one of those options. They were all too serious. And meanwhile, you had the totally fun rave scene. So, uh, you know, they got their glow sticks and their big paper rub and they, and they jumped into it. And it makes sense that the breakbeat people would end up kind of uh, throwing their lot in with the acid guys and Fabio and Groove Rider, who were influential people, uh, kind of who started out, they were in the rare groove scene, but then when they were DJing at Rage, they were doing acid house, but they, they kind of started integrating 
breakbeats into their sound and it was a bit of a feedback loop where they would you know they they credited uk hip hop uh, hip house a lot with with putting in breakbeats that were fast enough to mix records uh, across you know acid house techno house and then hip house in there and that got the breakbeats basically into the house and from there the reaction was one of those feedback loops where the more they played those those fast break records the more people loved them the more producers handed them new records of the same style and it just kept going and going and then at the after parties the turntables just got pitched up and all of a sudden you're at 160 170 bpm and it's jungle all right and let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors when we come back we'll continue the tale And one thing I love about this aspect of the scene is the way that electro gets uh, stays alive and, and is brought into the scene because electro, you know, starts with Africa Bambata's Planet Rock, and you've got artists like Mantronics, um, DJ Steinsky, Davey DMX, and others that have this pretty cool moment in the mid early to mid 80s that run dmc and and later on like eric b and rakim just absolutely annihilated and electro is one of those genres that looked like it was in danger of being sort of erased that it wasn't going to have influence going forward but it absolutely did it pops up in this in this jungle scene and and reynolds says that hard hardcore was basically hip-hop on e rather than a debased form of techno that it was getting slagged at the time because People were saying this isn't techno. This is this is breaking the fundamental rules of techno. This is kind of embarrassing, uh, you know, to the legacy of Derek May, et cetera. But had they understood that this was actually a weird variant of hip hop rather than um, a, a degenerated form of techno, maybe they would have appreciated it more. And he and he, he shouts out some tracks like uh, "Infinite Hype" by DJ Tracks, "Thunder Grip" by Hyperon Experience that feature breaks and bass lines that are quote rough b-boy business so they're sort of precursors of the jungle thing and that hardcore producers like dj hype and two bad mice are even reviving scratching around this time scratching the fundamental technique grandmaster flash introduced to hip-hop that had kind of slid out of hip-hop and had been a big feature of hip house and the whole you know uh ace of bass delight pop um mars moment there but kind of got seen as corny and and taken out so there's a revival around this time reminds me a uh, kind of of richie hot and reviving uh the uh the acid baseline so you know everything old is new again and reynolds says hardcore jungle started as a breakbeat fueled offshoot of techno techno by late 1992 it had devolved into a speed freak cousin of hip-hop and sort of has these two competing thesis he says hardcore was the messy birth pangs of britain's very own equivalent to hip-hop i.e jungle or jungle is a raved up digitized offshoot of jamaican reggae with its spatialized production the bass quake pressure and a battery of extreme sonic effects that make it postmodern dub on steroids where are yeah, you I mean, tempted to come down on that? Yeah, I mean, you don't have jungle music without the influence of the Windrush generation. If there's no reggae and no dub, then there's no jungle sound. But uh, then, then you got to give credit to uh, all the all the white people at the acid clubs for for accepting this this music and uh, allowing it to to grow and. Uh, 
and basically they were the audience for it at first. So it's this, it, it, I can see what they're saying as far as uh, it's the digitized offshoot of Jamaican reggae, because it definitely is, but it's also, you needed that hardcore element in it for, for it to have a, a fertile ground to grow out of. Yeah, and he absolutely points out that the third element of jungle is derived from the Belgian brutalism, uh, and also the the New Jersey aspect of that, the Joey Beltram aspect. Those those big, that big aggressive vibe of hardcore uh, comes in as as the third factor uh, here. But there's also these elements of reggae culture that are big in the jungle scene that things like dub plates, which is when an acetate is passed out to DJs, but it's never really commercially released or hasn't been commercially released yet. Uh, that's a big, big part of the Jamaican sound system tradition. Also when that comes over to the UK, I mean, if the DJ that's got the tracks, nobody else has, has a big leg up over everybody else. Also the, what they called rewinds when the crowd makes the DJ wheel and come again. And that's literally just spinning the record backwards until you get to the part, the start of the part they want to hear again. Um, and there's also the most popular jungle tracks by 1994 built around vocal licks, either sampled or they bring it in uh, people to do rapping. And even the name jungle comes from Jamaica, as is the term drum and bass that, that MC Navigator of Cool FM, the pirate radio station, he says that junglist, the term junglist is first heard and UK rave music as a sample used by hip house producer Rebel MC, who grabbed the chant All of the Junglists from a yard tape, which is a sound system mixtape that came, was imported from Jamaica into Britain. And there's a place in Kingston called Tivoli Gardens, and people called it the jungle. So on this particular mixtape, the raga artist or dancehall artist was called, shouting out to the people from Tivoli Gardens, all of the junglists. That gets sampled. That becomes part of these hardcore breakbeat songs gets played on pirate radio all the time and that's where the term junglist comes from which then the term jungle is derived from that yeah there's all this kind of mythology that gets imported from uh from 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 jamaica and from the dub scene and from the reggae scene and stuff like that and it all gets brought in and amalgamated into jungle and it gives it kind of this meaty back story and 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 a, and a certain amount of coolness uh, and freshness, even though it's something old, something new. So all of a sudden you have all this language and you have all these traditions and, and you have the permission based on how this has been run before in, in Jamaica as to how to do things. You know, sound system culture in the UK being big, toasting being big, all these things are integrated into the jungle scene much more effortlessly because they, they have a blueprint that they're following now. Yeah, and, and, and Reynolds talks, and I thought this was really neat, that he talks how Jungle kind of closes the circle by reconnecting hip-hop with Jamaica, points out that, you know, uh, DJ Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash are both Afro-Caribbean imports, you know, immigrants from Jamaica to the States. Cool Herc's whole sound system idea was something that he knew to do because his dad, and you know, he'd been in Jamaica, and his, his dad understood a sound system. So that hip-hop a lot of hip hop books start in Jamaica. And so this, this kind of closes that circle and reconnects it because there's always been a tension between Afro-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans. And, you know, Bob Marley wasn't popular when he first was marketed in the States because they tried to market it to the African-American community. It turns out that was the wrong pond efficient that Bob Marley got big in the States when they marketed it to the rock community. Then it got popular with African-Americans. So um, a, lot of, a lot of funny stuff. And then he kind of gets big picture and he talks about how, 
uh, Haitian Voodoo, the what we call Voodoo, or Cuban Santeria are both hybrid cultures that are syncretic religions that combine elements of West African animism with Catholicism, and that that's very similar to Jungle, which combines all these different African-derived and Anglo-derived elements together. But then he goes on a long riff about the term jungle and how it fits the music so well. There's the urban jungle me metaphor, which you know, has a long pop history from tracks like the Whaler's Concrete Jungle, Sly Stone's Africa Talks to You, quote, parentheses, the asphalt jungle, uh, to Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel's The Message. It's like a jungle sometimes I feel I'm going under, et cetera, et cetera. Plus there's the old jungle rhythms, Bugaboo, which was the big object of fear and desire in the 50s, like when Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and those guys come out, all the old heads were tut-tutting, oh, this is just savage jungle music, jungle rhythms. Then there's the dreaded jungle fever, which, uh, you know, there was a Spike Lee movie around this time that's the fear of miscegenation or race mixing. And, but also there's that appeal to it. And um, so this, it's jungle. both. It's both a diss and and it's it's also just uh, it's. I mean, it's a very flexible word, and it. Uh, but it's also it. Uh, you, you, there's a uh, there's a very root feeling to it. So when you hear jungle music, you, you just say that sounds right, and uh, and you can see how it kind of carries over into black culture in a number of, number of ways, both po both positively and negatively. And a, a lot of dance music kind of ends up labeled uh, with uh, with a genre name that's you know 50 percent flippant and 50% uh, really, uh, really endearing. And Jungle is definitely one of those. Yeah. And, and he talks about how, you know, Jungle has created a lot of excitement among critics and scholars. I've said the same thing because it was the first significant and truly indigenous uh, Afro-Anglo music. But like you pointed out, the third leg of Jungle is the brutal bombast of, Euro, of the Euro hardcore sound that was spawned in Belgium and Brooklyn. And also from day one, more than 50% of the leading jungle DJs and producers have been white. Andy C, Aphrodite, Dead Dread, DJ Hype uh, produced some of the blackest sounding, most hip hop and ragged influenced tracks. And he tells the story of Goldie um, being freaked out to discover that Doc Scott was white. You know, Goldie was like, I'm sure this guy's an N-word and then meets him and he's blonde, you know, blue eyed and, and everything. But let's let's go ahead and hear Dead Dread's Dread Bass and hear that dread bass sound. Dreads Dread Bass, which became one of those tracks where the bass line would be reused on track after track and referred ever after as, as the Dread Bass. And he also talks up how in within the scene that it was jungle was emphasized as a British sound more than a black sound, that people were more proud that this was something that was their own, i.e. British, not not people identifying as British rather than black. And that the term jungle, even though some people call that racist um, as a term. Realm says it actually codifies the multiracial aspect of this scene versus the mostly white audience for trance, techno, and ambient. And it, 
that shows that a transracial alliance is possible and that junglists belong to a, quote, jilted generation who are bored and frustrated with little to live for other than burning up dead time in a weekend's worth of jungle fever. And it was defined by not by race, but by class. Yeah, because of the way Jungle was partially birthed out of the extremely white hardcore and acid house scene, there's been this impressive openness when it comes to who's allowed to make and play the music that you definitely didn't see in like, you know, the, the 90s US rap scene. Uh, it, it's fully in, uh, a fully integrated scene for the most part. Of course, you know, it's hard for issues of race not to pop up, uh, you know, like in the split between Jungle and Drum and Bass that we'll, we'll get to in just a little bit longer. All right, so, so I'm looking forward to, to seeing that. And he also talks about how there's definitely an outlaw aspect to Jungle, that the three st staples of the scene are pirate radio, totally illegal, illegal drugs, obviously illegal, and uncleared samples. They're not, you know, they're not paying the Winston Brothers for that amen sample. And, and there's also a mythology of outlawism, you know, the, the pirate radio. DJ's given, quote, big shout outs to all the wrongins and tons of sound bites from Goodfellas and Scarface and other gangster movies. And that it reflected a nation in recession in the early 90s who's had the social safety net stripped by a decade of, of Thatcherism. And the vibe just totally changed. He talks about how in 1992, the stereotypical hardcore raver was a sweaty, shirtless, white teenager grinning uh, and reeking of Vicks and asking you for a bottle of Evian. And then the 1994 stereotypical junglist was a head nodding, stylishly dressed black 20 something with hooded eyes, holding a spliff in one hand and a bottle of champagne in the other. Definitely not all sweaty. They would have hankies to keep themselves cool. And that he says, as hardcore evolved into jungle, it shed raves emotional demonstrativeness and gestural abandon, which had originated in gay disco and entered white working class body consciousness via ecstasy. But that just didn't work for young black people who have to keep their guard up in, in a racist, white dominated society. So the bonhomie gave way to a surly vigilance, and that the smiling of the early rave scene was replaced by the screw face because, you know, in hip hop culture, smiling is associated with cooning with, with acting like a buffoon to try to, to please the white man. So, um, you know, everybody is like the, the Rolling Stones when their manager told them, don't smile on your photos. Everybody's trying to look cool, trying to look tough. And, and this is definitely uh, definitely a real thing. Like uh, you, you, see, you saw it at a lot of the early parties, and they would they might not have understood why exactly they split the music up into four 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 to the floor and 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 the breakbeat uh, jungle rooms and stuff like that. But the crowds that gravitated towards each individual rooms, you know, the ravers had a uniform, and so did the jungle kids, and it was it was the the dress code was pretty pretty well established and carried by everybody. Yeah, and he talks about how the women had changed their look too, and that you know he describes women in skin tight hot pants, bustiers, and microskirts, half crouching and flexing their abdomens, as sexy but menacing, and and a very uh, sort of different, um, just a totally different style of thing. What is that dancing called now? I mean, everybody does it. Miley twerking. Cyrus Twer twerking, exactly. So it's sort of proto twerking, and that. I, I, I've, I came across this totally fascinating thing where this uh, white Texas liberal preacher that I follow on Facebook was talking about how he had initially been appalled and disgusted by twerking. But once he looked into it and discovered that it's an ancient African spiritual dancing form that 
uh, is being expressed, he totally changed his mind on it. And this is absolutely the same thing. It's it's women displaying their power, not advertising their availability, but 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 displaying their power. And and so it's um, you know one of those classic is this demeaning or empowering kind of things. Um, and then he gets into the London aspect of it, and and that how Jungle's Creole culture could only have evolved in London, which he says is an important crossroads on the webbed pathways of the Black, black Atlantic. So this is from a scholar named Paul Gilroy, who talks about the Black Atlantic, which is you know everything from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of South America, the Caribbean, the east coast of the U.S., uh, and and up into London and the, the west coast of Europe and the the old slave triangle has become this web of the diaspora where people are communicating and 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 cross-pollinating and all these ideas are coming and that this is an assertion of african sonic priorities polyrhythms and bass frequencies which caused a contraction in the audience that uh, you know, you get, get hardcore in 92 is this nationwide chart topping pop music, and it morphs into a regional underground centered on London. And that after Toy Town Techno, Mix Mag declaring Rave dead, uh, and they stop covering hardcore. So Jungle has this great time to evolve, which is one of the rare times in modern British culture when the British magazines were not all over a scene. And there have been so many little micro scenes that the British press has discovered, touted, and killed because they, you know, hyped it prematurely. Jungle got this cover and was able to evolve uh, away from the prying eye and overexposure of the media. Yeah, a key element of Jungle's longevity is that it came from the underground and that mainstream success that's come and gone uh, for, for other genres that usually leave it them dead and discarded once the hits stop coming. Like the underground jungle drum and bass scene was always a self-sustaining beast. There were enough passionate people dedicated to the music and happy to remain in the underground that no matter what the tastes of the time were, uh, there was always this solid ground from which more seeds could could grow from. And uh, the pirate radio stations never stopped playing the music. The labels kept out churning great tracks and the DJs uh, had weekly events and they were ideologically committed to sticking to the sound and not chasing whatever the new trend would be. So there was like a purest element that staked out jungle drum and bass as the separate and unique thing that was holy to these people. And uh, at, at this point, even just this earliest 92, 93, there's like, there was Swerve, there was Rage, there were Sunday sessions, Clink Street, The Dungeon, and larger rave events often had jungle with its own stage so and these were sometimes the biggest stage so the london drum and bass community was serious and it was large enough to be self-sustaining uh, there was major nights almost every day of the week and uh, there was like a militant core of drum and bass fans who went out to them so it was there was never there was never kind of what happened with other genres like speed garage or even with say you know happy hardcore in the end also kind of just succumbed to its own inability to move forward and change and, and add new fresh names into it jungle always survive because it doesn't care what's going on in the mainstream. It just keeps on doing its thing. And everybody loves that. Yeah. And, and we've talked about different scenes like that throughout the series, things like hardcore punk in America in the eighties, the thrash metal underground in America, and then globally in the eighties and nineties, if a scene is really underground and has a hardcore and its own parallel small business networking, it can survive the, you know, ups and downs of, of cruel fortune 
And like you said, they had pirate radio, they had really micro labels, they had dingy off the beaten path clubs and specialist record shops, uh, record shops like Lucky Spin, Black Market, Unity, and The Underground. It was a 12-inch centered scene. It didn't move to CDs. It wasn't about cassette tapes. It was about 12-inch records. And they used dub plates, which a lot of times a producer would never even release the track. They'd just bust out some acetates and take it to the DJs and the pirate radio stations, which meant that mixtapes... Uh, and pirate radio bootlegs were essential if you wanted to document the scene because this stuff, these records were never commercially released. So yeah, by early 1994, jungle is a totally self-sufficient economy. And uh, when um, it gets popular in the summer of 94, they didn't know how to handle it. But let's hear one more track. This is Body Snatch's You Funny, uh, Just For You London. Body Snatch with Euphony Just For You London. And that's one of the tracks that acknowledges that this is a London-based scene, that this isn't a nationwide scene. It's not a trans-European scene. It's certainly not a transatlantic scene. This is a London-based scene. Everything gets local. And then, yeah, it starts having hits. And people like General Levy, who did the vocals on Incredible, which is one of the biggest jungle hits ever, goes out and brags, I'm running jungle and many a DJ and producer uh, talked to Mr. Levy, to General Levy, and, and clarify, excuse me, sir, you are not running Jungle. Yeah, this is where you get to that controversial Jungle Committee, which was a response to Incredible, which was a mainstream hit and really blew the roof off of Jungle music and kind of opened it up to uh, to, to mainstream attention. But a lot of the established Jungle DJs and labels were not happy about the influx of dancehall ragged music, which they blamed on an uptick of violence at parties and problems with gangs and stuff. So they saw things going down the same road as gangster rap in the U.S., and they did not like it. So there was this real sustained effort to save Jungle that in effect attempted to push out a lot of the more overt Jamaican influences. So it's it's a real touchy subject, one that still comes up to this day. Like General Livy is still giving interviews, understandably pissed off that a significant part of the scene tried to toss him out. And it, it's hard to ignore the ugly racist truth that it was the most forward black elements of the music that was being or attempted to, to be suppressed, often by other you know, to make it more complex, it's by other black jungle DJs, label owners and producers who were trying to protect their position at the more mixed and white clubs and raves. So, uh, you know, there, there's stories about guns and knives and shootings and violence at parties. It was all getting out of control. So there's like whole cities like Birmingham and Manchester where the jungle scene was turning into a war zone. So, you know, the opinion of the jungle committee folks uh, and their affiliated people was that, you know, 
these people weren't real junglists. These were casuals coming in due to the commercialization of, of jungle through these dance hall ragged hits. And they were just going to ruin things for everybody who was the, the real junglists with the stigma of gangster violence. So, you know, you can't, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure how the nitty gritty of how it all worked out, but in some ways the scene took care of itself because the gangsters moved off out of jungle into speed garage. Once speed garage became the new flavor of the month and now Raga and Raga elements are back in the mix in general. So all's well that ends well. <laughs> or that keeps going. And, and it reminds me of that split in the Detroit techno scene way early on where the Belleville three and other West side of Detroit upper middle-class kids really resisted um you know they would have signs no jits meaning no jitterbugs they did not want kids from the projects on the east side of detroit and inner city of detroit coming to their parties partly because of you know with that working class influx you get the violence and, and et cetera et cetera of the projects but yeah so these these intra african anglo fights get real complicated and and quite nasty so you know um and it ends up split splitting the music off because there was a conscious decision on the part of a lot of producers to remove a lot of those dance hall elements from tracks and no longer have uh you know the 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 dance hall mc style in, in their music and it kind of led to a uh a, a turn towards what ends up being considered more drum and bass and again this is one of those things where you know most junglists when you talk about jungle drum and bass either it's kind of the same or will point towards certain elements but uh, a big push away from more of that ragged jungle towards the quote-unquote intelligent drum and bass which is you know uh, we'll talk about that when we come back around. I, I, I initially said intelligent drum and bass wasn't too much of a dog whistle for some people, but after reading some interviews uh, with the people at the time, it was there was a lot of heat that came out of that. But you know, there, there's there's the jump up and the crazy stuff, and then you have the more smooth, liquidy funks. And and there were there was a line that was drawn down the middle, and you know the the two sides kind of went their way, and it was a it was a it was an interesting time for the music. For sure. And it's going to be like a month before we get to that that next phase, because next next week we'll be talking about GABA and Happy Hardcore. Then we'll be talking about American rave culture. Then we'll be talking about trip hop. And then we'll finally get to the intelligent drum and bass versus tech stuff. It's interesting because this book is covering so many things, but I think fundamentally the central story of it is this evolution from hardcore into jungle and then the various splits um, between jungle uh, and drum and bass, jungle, drum and bass versus tech step, and later on, garage versus two-step, dubstep, etc. So as always, Ryan, it's a hoot for Ryan Harkness. I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And next we'll be back, next week we'll be back to talk about GABA and happy hardcore. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to discuss GABA, the extreme form of techno that evolved in Holland, and Happy Hardcore, the provincial and populist reaction to Jungle's dominance of London. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Yeah.